Hi everyone, I'm Trisha Bell. Hi, I'm Georgie Young. And welcome to CTE Talk, a podcast where we talk all about CTE, concussion culture and sport, and life as a family member. Every Monday, we will be joined by guests to shed light on the neurological disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Join us on our mission to raise awareness and educate others. Welcome, Joy, to CTE Talk, and thank you for joining us today to talk to us about your experience with CTE and traumatic brain injury regarding your son, Kevin. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it is my mission to help share his story so that other people who may be in a similar place know that they are not alone. Yes. And Joy and Georgia and I all met at the same function about a year ago at the um, Concussion Legacy Foundation Family Huddle. And um, I don't remember, I guess I, I had heard you speak or stand up at the table and speak at some point. And then I singled you out and I'm like, I have to go talk to that lady. And we talked for a while and you told me about a book. And that's, I remember I wrote down your name and I, and I had your card. And then when we started the podcast, I remembered you and I said, oh my goodness, I have to, I have to contact Joy because your story was quite compelling. Thanks. I I did write a book. It's called Faith Alone, A Mother and Son's Story, Hope and Love. And the book itself really is my experience with my son as he was recovering or attempting to recover from a brain injury and and our struggles with that. And the, the story originally started when he, when my son went down in a rugby match and that was in September of 2013 and he didn't he was unconscious but he did not awaken as they expected and he ended up in a coma for about 6 weeks and then as he started emerging from the the coma he was catastrophically injured. That's the only way I can describe it. He couldn't see. We didn't find that out for a while. He lost his vision through cortical blindness. He could, um, he wasn't paralyzed, but walking was incredibly difficult for him. The motor control, he had to relearn and start over. He had a very uh, short memory. And I mean, it, his, they, the doctors call it called it early onset dementia. And so to me, it looked a lot like Alzheimer's people look, but he was only in his early 30s at the time. And mm-hmm. so as we, I was spending much time with him, I was uh, creating posts on a site called Caring Bridge where our family spread out all over the United States. And as a young man who'd been in the military, his friends were all over the United States and other countries as well. So I did daily posts on him and what was going on in his life and how we we were reacting. As time passed, my son did pass away and that's part of the CTE story. But um, the Caring Bridge posts Many people encouraged me to write a book about my story and use those posts as the framework. So ultimately, in 2018, he passed away in 2017. In 2018, 
I decided that I needed to write down my memories of my son before I lost them myself, you know, because our memories are imperfect. So I started using the Caring Bridge posts and interfacing some of my memories of him. And of course, it could have been a super long book, so I had to cut it down a little bit. That The other impetus was my parents, who are in their 90s now, and they encouraged me to write this book as parents encourage their kids. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are, your parents still <laughs> have their their ideas. And as they were getting older, I, I thought, I want to get this done before they are gone from this world as well. So that's kind of the background of how the book Mm -hmm. came to be. Mm -hmm. And how long was your son suffering with the symptoms from his injury before he sadly passed away? Well, when he was in the military and he had three tours of duty, he was in Kosovo originally, the UN peacekeeping force. And then in 2005, he was deployed to Iraq and... It was a really long deployment. The whole deployment, including the preparation of and everything, was almost two years long. He was boots on ground in Iraq for 13 months. When he came back from that in 2007, we were already seeing some impacts of war. And that was, we, as his family, we thought, that happens in war. He saw terrible things. He was a part of many conflicts and was in combat. And so we wrote it up as like PTSD type things. Then he went for a third deployment, which was from 2011 to 2012, back to Iraq. And that deployment, things started falling apart about halfway through of, through that deployment where he was He called his sister and the comments to her frightened her. And she thought that he was suicidal. He was really talking about never returning and to make sure everybody knew that he loved them, but he did, he wouldn't be coming back. And she called me and uh, I called the chaplain and the chaplain found him. They had a hard time finding where he was, of course, because he was in combat. And when they did find him, they evaluated him, sent him through Germany to William Beaumont Hospital and the Warrior Transition Unit down in El Paso, Texas. So all of that had happened before the rugby accident. So in the fall of 2013, about a month, it would it was the 11th month, since he had gotten his honorable discharge, he had the rugby accident. So from the rugby accident till the point that he passed away was three years and four months. And during those three years and four months, we we worked really hard to rehabilitate him. And, and I was a special ed direct, director. I was a teacher. I saw kids with brain injuries. I saw kids who who had neurological differences and the the hospital information was if you have a concussion and you have a brain injury you can rehabilitate but after about a year you will have what you have so my goal was to work with him as hard as 
as we could to recover of as much of his functioning as possible. And he really worked hard on that. But the difference was he would work, he would regain a skill, and then months later, some months later, not long, because it was really accelerating fast, he would lose it all over and start all over again. And that was what we saw during that three years and four months. Mm-hmm. And in his discharge, um, after his discharge, sorry, did them suicidal thoughts dissipate at all? Or was that something that you had to support him with and he dealt with for a period of time? He did always have those. I mean, it was, he was, he was a very determined young man, as a lot of our soldiers are, of course, and he was going to take care of it on his own, but uh, he, he had a very difficult time with depression and anxiety and sleepless, much, much sleepless nights. And all of that, you know, precipitates those suicidal ideation and thoughts. So during those 11 months before the rugby accident, we Myself, his sister and his brother and uh, his father were concerned that we would get a call that he had committed suicide, but he did not. And when he decided to join the rugby team, um, we were all actually pretty excited that spring because at least he was out doing something with his brothers and a lot of them are ex-military as well and Mm -hmm. you know he was enjoying it it seemed like but he was very high risk looking for for situations where he would get the adrenaline rush of Mm -hmm. playing a sport like that yeah and I, I did I've asked the previous guest this but I just wondered what your thoughts were on how much you attributed his depression to kind of his role in the military compared to how much you would attribute it to being a a side effect of brain injury suspected CTE I didn't I had no idea about CTE when when he first had the injury all I knew was it his symptoms did not seem to match up with what the book and the doctors said his symptoms should be and so I didn't really attribute what we saw after the injury to CTE at first. It it was probably a couple of years. And what I did was every time things didn't follow the the trajectory that the doctors expected, I was like, what is the reason? What is the reason? And I started doing a lot of research using, and, and as an educator, I my research, I looked for journals and not just, you know, pop research, mm-hmm. but I really searched for journals and I came across CTE and the the work that Dr. McKee and Chris were doing. And I was really curious because what they were describing then at that point, I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if it was the the blasts he was exposed to during his deployment between 2005 and 2007, he was exposed to more than 12 
IED blasts within the the target zone. He did. He never had a blood injury. You know, um, he was never hit with shrapnel, any of that stuff. But he was in that area for at least twelve IED blasts, maybe more, in the course of that thirteen months where he was boots on ground. So that's one blast injury every month for almost the entire deployment and sometimes more in a month. And so once I started looking at that history, I suspected at that point that maybe it was uh, related to CTE. Of course, there's no diagnosis except post-mortem, although we're getting better diagnosis now as, as we've all learned, you know, but at that time in, in 2000, 13, 14, 15, it was still at the very beginnings of the diagnosis prior to death. So that's when I really found out, suspected. I didn't know until after he died, actually. Mm -hmm. Did you decide close to that time that you were going to try to to donate his brain? No, I didn't even really think, I didn't really think of that at first. Um, he, he had always wanted to be an organ donor. So, you know, my thought, he ended up in hospice. I mean, as, as his condition continued to deteriorate, I would ask the doctors, you know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And, and, you know, the, probably the, the one thing that I would tell doctors if I had the opportunity is, don't say every person is different and that's why it's happening. That's not really a reason. We all know every person is different. And the he ended up in hospice care at our VA hospital here in the Minneapolis area. And before he was in hospice, we I asked for one more set of test because he was really declining at that point and uh, not eating and and uh, those kinds of things and what they discovered was at that point he had lost a third of his brain mass and you know things were not good so he was in hospice and I wanted to make sure that he was able to be an organ donor um, because that was as a child from his childhood he wanted to be an organ donor. And I was uh, informed that people in hospice can't be organ donors because of the drugs and stuff. So I was devastated. And it was at that point that I said, if he cannot be an organ donor um, in the traditional sense, let's donate his brain to Boston University. Oh, wow. Everybody's story is different about how they get to Boston University, which, as we know, but maybe not all, but all of our audience knows that Boston University is the leader in in the postmortem diagnosis of CTE. Is yeah, that correct, Georgia? Yeah, yeah, no, it is correct. I think they they deal with a lot of individuals, and I know they have a great team there that that basically take kind of all the weight off the caregivers or family members shoulders and they deal with everything really quickly and efficiently shall we say um but yeah they are the main people to that people go to right and and uh the thing about the original well most 
of the information that I saw when I was doing research, what could possibly be happening with my son was, of course, with NFL players and and so forth. And there were, when I looked at the, the legacy donors lists, there were people who had military service as well. But the thing that was different with Kevin was he wasn't a professional. He played football in high school. He, you know, he was very athletic as many, many of the people who've been donors are. And, but he wasn't professional players. So when I reached out to see if they'd accept his brain donation, you know, I was like, well, he was a football player. He did play rugby, had a rugby accident, a knock on the head, whatever. And, but he also had military service. And so in his application, it, it had that. And I gave the history of the, uh, the ID blast history as I knew it, obviously, and they accepted him and then ultimately uh, used his story to help develop Project Enlist where there's where there's more awareness. Because one of the things I found amazing was even at the time of 2017, the VA hospital that I was working with in Minneapolis had really no idea about what was happening in Boston University. Yeah. You know, so the project enlist is to help other veterans know that they can also support through research upon their death. Because, you know, when a a veteran commits suicide or dies tragically or early, you know, if you don't know that you can make that kind of donation, that brain is lost to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely so many more people that are affected than the statistics show, isn't there? Because people mm-hmm. don't aren't aware of the things that you can do if you are struggling and in terms of the brain donation after they pass away as well. So it is really important to raise awareness on the different aspects or routes you can go down to help support these this research and these these programs that are going on. Yeah. Can I ask Joy? So you've mentioned a couple of times that the doctors were were saying that it's not typical, and you also were noticing other symptoms that made you do some research. And what were those things that were setting Kevin apart from just the normal whatever well, injury? One thing is he didn't, his, he was tested a lot. I mean, because, you know, his blood tests, his biological tests, uh, they fluctuated like highly. So sometimes he'd be right on, sometimes he'd be super high, you know, like dangerously high in certain areas. Sometimes he'd be dangerously low, wild fluctuation search that we have so far. And I, I looked at that as a former educator and someone who just is interested in the research. You know, I, I received a big manual from the VA. It was probably three inches in size, you know, it was huge about what to do with traumatic brain injury and, and symptoms to watch for. And so I use that as my measuring point. And every time he was so wildly fluctuating, I would ask about that because the, the common research is 
brain injury, do what you can to rehabilitate. It won't get much better after about a year and it won't get much worse. It will sustain. And so my question was in all of these things, cortical blindness, um, the biological responses, the fact that he could learn and did learn. I mean, he could speak off every medication that he had by its scientific name, not by its common name. He could do that. And then three months later, he couldn't, you know, so his, why was that happening? You know, the, the research that I learned as an educator was you can rewire your brain, right? I mean, we've all heard that people don't use all of their brains. So even if there's a brain injury, you can reteach a skill and the pathways of your brain able to take over for the damaged area. And what I saw was, yes, he could take, he could rewire his brain, but then it would disappear. And why was that happening? Well, now what Boston is finding out, Boston University and the CT and the other researchers are finding is the rewiring for someone with CTE it's a degenerative condition and the neurons continue to be damaged past injury. So, you know, once I learned that, I was like, ah, that, that is what it looks like to me too. Mm-hmm. And did your son live with you at the time? Was he always? No, he ended, he ended up in a group home. I was living alone at the time. All my, my other two kids were gone and working full time. And I could not, the system wasn't set up to get support in the home for me, like to even sleep at night. You know, he needed someone with him 24 seven and I didn't have the resources to make that happen. So he was in a group home. I did leave my job a few years, well, about a year and a half after his injury And I took early retirement. And even though he didn't live with me, I spent most of my days with him, either taking him to appointments or trying to give him experiences that, that he could do. For example, I, I took him to a a veterans event that was near us. And there was a, a display there of all different kinds of weapons and he had been in the infantry and weapons were his thing. So uh, remember, he's he has cortical blindness. He cannot see at all. And I brought him over to the, the booth in his wheelchair and asked the guy who was running the exhibit if, if he could handle the weapons because I wanted, I, I knew that that was a part of his life and I wanted to to give him something that he could potentially remember. And he picked up the first weapon and described it, gave its, you know, name, said what it was used for, started taking it apart, you know, starting. And so the guy who was watching was like, wow. And we had another caregiver with us at that time to help me with, with all his cares. And that person was just flabbergasted that he could do that. And then he did it again and again and again, weapon after weapon. And people 
who saw that kind of thing from him were always astonished. But it just goes to prove that, you know, the the neurons, those particular neurons and those memory centers were not impacted like the frontal lobe or mm. those kinds of things. They were more physically connected, which was to me another indication that this wasn't a concussion based result. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that a lot actually. A lot of people that I know that have suffered with dementia, they have their short term memory is completely shot in the fact that they can't remember anything they did 20 minutes ago. Yet they were were caught like I don't know. So for example, someone I knew was a typewriter when they were younger and when they were suffering with dementia symptoms, they were caught like pretending to type on a typewriter. And apparently uh, I did some research on it and your long-term memory source, it's like you were saying, Joy, that them neurons don't seem to be faulty, even with these conditions. And they go back to them, that long-term data storage of what they used to do all them years ago. And that's why you see them repeating these behaviors again. So that is a really interesting aspect of it. I was just wondering, like, what was the point that you realized actually your son wasn't going to improve with his injury? Uh, it was about, well, I I probably was later than, than my remaining son and my daughter. You know, they, I think they both realized it earlier than I did, but, mm-hmm. but I finally recognized it at his last six months of his life. And think, like I said, things were, were accelerating in that where, what took three months for him to lose is now taking weeks. And I, you know, a lot of people have asked me, did he commit suicide? He did not commit suicide in the traditional sense of doing himself damage you know, like we see a lot of suicides, but did he decide that he was not going to go on with his life? Perhaps, you know, and that really started about six months. Again, it was, you know, he was refusing to eat. He was um, becoming more and more withdrawn that the last six months of his life were awful to watch in that unless I was there physically with him, um, making him do things, you know, get up, move, he would spend the whole day in bed. And, you know, that I think we see also, that's another sad outcome that we see with people. Mm. With CTE, there's a lot, there's a lot of isolation, withdrawal, wanting to be in dark rooms, suicidality, all of that. Yes. Sorry, mm-hmm. Georgia, go ahead. I was about to say, I know obviously you mentioned that you had to take early retirement, but what other ways did this impact your personal life? Because I can imagine it was extremely overwhelming and difficult to deal with. Well, I I think from anyone who is really working with a person that intensely, you know, I, I was, my kids would say, there was hospital mom and then there was real mom. And, you know, when I was working with him, it was easy for me to slip into my role as a educator, teacher, caregiver, and lose my role as, as a mom. And so 
Kevin was very astute, even though his, his short-term memory was horrible. I remember at one time, you know, I, well, I would do all the things that the book said, like share your memories, show them things he couldn't see, but he could touch things, you know, that were in his past, do what you can to engage him. And one day he said to me, mom, don't ask me if I remember, because I don't, I don't remember. And it just makes me sad that you keep asking me and I feel like I'm disappointing you. And I thought for a person who's in his, in that condition to hear that was, it broke my heart, you know? So I lost a little bit. One of my experiences, I lost a little bit of who I was and it took a while for me to, to regain that. I remember one time uh, Kevin said, mom, who are you dating? I was not married at the time. And, and I said, I, Kevin, I'm not dating anybody right now. I've got so much on my plate. I couldn't even possibly think of building a relationship with anybody else. And he said, that's okay, mom, I'll help you find a good guy. I mean, you know, so he, he did what he could to pull back mom from where I had disappeared to, I guess. Wow. After the accident, the rugby accident, what was his mental capability besides, I mean, was he able to speak clearly and, and had all of that besides the short-term memory? And the yeah, sort of it was so amazing to people. He did speak clearly and, and he, I mean, you have to weave in the Alzheimer's like things, you know, in the short term memory. But, but I remember one day that uh, the speech therapist handed him a, a hairbrush and said, what is this? You know, that that's part of the cognitive testing. And he felt it and he said, it's a brush. Use it in a sentence. He said, the young lady brushed her beautiful long blonde hair. The, you know, the speech therapist was shocked that his descriptive language was there, you know, mm -hmm. and the fact that in the moment he could have a conversation. I remember one time he was very into Japanese, like Japanese anime and Japanese culture. And he read, a um, reading was difficult to him, but he did read books and he was reading a book about Ronins and I found the book and so I read the book and thought I'd talk to him about the book and I said I'm reading this book and it, it's about Ronins I said I don't even think I know what a Ronin is and he gave me the exact correct description you know he knew what it was and he could tell me and so the mystery to me was that part was not as impaired as everything else, which was very odd, you know, and sad too, I think for me, you know, and, and uh, him as well. Oh, we were talking about, you know, doing things physically. The other thing that he could do is he could sing any song and he was a good singer. So mm -hmm. before, so every once in a while he would, if I asked him a question, he'd burst out in a song that had a tie to it. I remember one group of therapists had stopped by to see him and they said, how are you doing today? And he 
burst out, Will, with the, the song from Annie, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. And, <laughs> you know, a very appropriate song uh-huh. for what the question was. So, you know, that that was that was another one of those paradoxes, I guess, or disconnects that made mm-hmm. me think that this is, it's the same, but it's different. Right. You know? Musical therapy is used quite a lot, actually, in dementia patients or Alzheimer patients, traumatic brain injury. There's something that they can't remember anything, but they can remember that every single lyric to the three minute songs that are their favorite. It's just so mm-hmm. nice, isn't it? How, how crazy it can affect and that half your brain can be damaged and the other half is working perfectly normal. I mean, it's just, it is just crazy, isn't it? So that is um, talking about the music therapy and the music piece. That is, you know, that is one of the, the blessings I think that we can give people who are suffering is bathe them in music because that is something that they can connect to. Mm -hmm. And as hard as it must be for family members and individuals like yourself, like trying to look after them, I think it's all about trying to provide the patient or the care recipient with as much joy as they can, as they, as they go through these stages and whether that's playing their favorite songs, so be it. Right. Yeah. They, for 500 times, who cares? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the other thing that he could do that I thought was a blessing in talking about the cognitive thing is after he told me that he didn't ask, he didn't want me to ask him if I remembered him. I was like, wow, what am I going to do? And so what I decided was I would ask him to tell me a story. And he, one time he told me a, a story, he said three brothers were walking down the street and they found a bottle and it was a genie in the bottle, you know. And so they they rubbed the bottle and the genie came out and they said, I will give you one wish for all three of you. You must agree on the wish. And so then the three brothers, he's telling this story about how the brothers are arguing and the youngest brother wanted this and the oldest brother wanted that and the middle brother wanted something else. And then at the end of the story, he said, he said and then the oldest brother said, stop we're done. And they all three walked away. And, and uh, one of the brothers said to him, why did we stop? He said, well, I made the wish. And they said, well, what did you wish for? And he said, peace. (laughs) (laughs) He made that up. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) You know, so I think that's another, you know, another strategy that I learned from him is you know maybe you don't remember but can you tell me a story you know and what strategies would you suggest other or future caregivers should use to help them navigate through through this challenging time I find things that they can do physically especially things they've done before like we talked about I think that typewriter thing is really a an interesting example you know we don't use typewriters now but we use computers and i think the showing the pictures is a good strategy in kevin's case showing him a picture without him being able to touch something wasn't necessarily going to work for him but i think that's a really good strategy and 
experience things, go out, go for a walk. Don't just sit in the room, walk. If that means pushing a wheelchair, so be it, but mm-hmm. go out in nature. I think that is really a, a good place. It's good for all of us, whether it's, you know, we're, we're dealing with CTE or brain injury. I think being out in, in a physical place is a good thing. Absolutely. PTSD, you know, all of those things, depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And you don't have to, beast. you don't have to walk. <laughs> you don't have to walk around. You can, can sit Yeah. and take it in. And I think the okay. the music, the playlist is, is really an important thing. You mentioned it with Alzheimer's, the whole concept of musical therapy, even if someone who maybe hasn't had music as a part of their life. They certainly have lived through a time period, you know, what are the the songs that they may have heard Mm. in their lifetime? And if they do have a a favorite period, build a playlist around it. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think that's great. It's all about these little tips and tricks that people can use to just make their lives a tiny bit easier. I mean, it's never going to be easy as it, as, as you know, but I think having these little, these little elements that can brighten your, your day and the person going through it is, is definitely key, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So did you go after obviously your son passed away? How quickly did you feel it was important to share your story with other people to, so other people could resonate or just to get it out there and raise awareness about the disease? I think it was always, once he died, I feel like I always knew that that would happen, but I was terrified to do it. I think that is part of the story too. It's like, I wrote it down. My parents kept asking me, are you going to do anything with that story that you wrote? Are you going, you know how parents are and are you, are you going to publish it? What are you going to do? And it actually took me two full years to get up the courage, I think, mm-hmm. to even start exploring how would I make that happen? How would I do that? Is it worth is it worth telling? I mean, that was part of the thing is, is my story worth telling? This is a mm. story of a person who, you know, he was 30 three, just a little over 33 when he passed away. His whole life, you know, was really involved with the military. He wasn't, you know, he was a sergeant, but he he wasn't like high in the chain of command. He was just an average person, so to speak. And is his story and my story worth telling? And I think for me, I had to come to grips myself that it was a story worth telling. In fact, I I read a lot. I like research. I listen to everybody else's story. And I was I was listening to a podcast, and and uh, it was an author. I don't even remember who it was, but but the comment that really struck me was the stories of the everyday people. Those are the stories that we really need to make sure are told because how many of us are everyday people compared to people who are 
of higher status or whatever. And I was like, okay. So my first thing was I sent like the first 50 pages to relative of mine and well, my parents as well, but another more distant relative who didn't really know me. Um, but I knew also did some writing and I said, what do you think? And she, she read it and she said, yeah, this is a book. And so then I took it to my pastor and I gave him the, asked him if he would read it and tell me what he thought. And he said, well, Joy, I mostly read the Bible and religious things, but I'll try it. I'll try it. So he reached out to me at after church one day, some weeks later, and he said, you know, I, I really didn't think I was going to actually read it. But I sat down one day and decided that I would. And yes, you need to tell this story. So I bolstered my um, my fear. And after listening to people that said, yeah, it's a story worth telling. What were you scared of? Were you scared of people questioning things or scared of the individuals who might not know what the disease is and therefore might there might be a stigma around sharing a story in that respect? I, I Everything. I think all of those pieces crossed my mind, you know, that mm. people might not believe me. They might think I'm making it up. They won't. They'll think I'm crazy. They'll, you know, I mean, all of yeah. those things. I think, you know, I think, yeah, I think there's something scary about vulnerability as well, isn't there, about being so open and honest and telling the truth and really opening yourself up. I think that can be quite a daunting thing, but look how far it's got you and all this research now. I mean, we really can't do any of it without individuals like yourself sharing the stories that you've experienced. So it's mm-hmm. every anyone who's listening who feels like they have a, a story to share then like you said I think it's worth doing so yeah that I I say that after every time I at the end of every discussion I have had in the past uh, year or so and that is your story is worth something and it is important to tell your story in fact my minister said that after he read the first 50 pages, he grew up in North Dakota or South Dakota. He grew up in one of the Dakotas. I think it was South Dakota. And his grandfather is still alive. And he said, I went out there and I said, Grandpa, tell me some stories. Tell me the stories of your life. And he said that it was a very profound experience by asking that question because he heard things about his grandpa, the person he's known besides his parents for his whole life that he had no idea. And if he hadn't asked his grandfather to tell the stories and the grandfather was so happy, my minister said, now I know those stories. So when my grandfather is gone, I can share them with my children and grandchildren. Yeah, there's something so powerful about a story, isn't it? And this, what you've just said really fits in well. We have had a question from one of our previous guests for you that was asking, what's a piece of advice or a quote that you live by since your experience? So would you say that the story one is something you would would use as that? I would use that. My advice is ask people to tell their story. I, in fact, I have tried to embed that in my life and, and I... Uh, met a gentleman a couple of weeks ago and uh, we just got 
to talking. He was a Vietnam vet. And I was like, wow, you know, tell me your story. And so he sat down and he talked to me and told me his story. Someone who was nearby and was had overheard that conversation came up to me afterwards and said, I've known this man a long time and I never knew that story. It's funny, you know, isn't it? Actually, I, I'm thinking back like in day to day life, you, you just are so busy. You're overwhelmed with work or different demands as part of life. And you never actually sit down and ask people to tell them their stories. And there's something so powerful about listening to the stories told by the person who, who have gone through them. So, no, I think that's a great piece of advice. And I really hope people take that on board. There was one other part of that, sort of a tangential part of that. As I was getting ready to write down my memories, it struck me at that, you know, I had a limited time with my son, you know, before the, I mean, in his whole life, he, because he was in his early thirties when he passed, you know, and I was like, how many days is that? How many days were in that three years and four months before he died. So I did the numbers, you know, the three years is is a little over a thousand days. And I said, that should be a thousand memories I have of him or more. Right. And in his whole life, how many memories I would say create memory list every day of something in your life, because it's so easy. We get busy and we don't think about the good things that happen or the little things, even, you know, the, the birds flying out at the bird feeder. And you saw this bird on a certain day. If you had that written down, you could, you could go back and use that to, to collect your memories. So tell the stories and remember something every day. I love I think, that. I love that too. I think life simplicity is so precious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think having them little memories a day, I think that's a great way to show gratitude, but also, like you said, use it as a source of reflection in times where you need it most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joy. And with the theme of storytelling, that is exactly why Georgia and I started the podcast for just for a platform for people to come tell their story related to CTE. And so we thank you very much for joining us today. And hopefully I I would love to get a copy of your book. Where could I find that? Well, right now you can get it by emailing me at joydice75 at gmail.com and then send me your information. The books, I'm asking $20 for each book and that includes the shipping. So there you go. I would would love to get a copy of that. Okay. We'll put okay. a link in. We'll put a link in our episode for this episode. Sorry, and so people can contact you if they if they want to come and read get a it. book. Yeah, that would be exactly. great. And was- and uh, actually, Chris from CTE did write a forward to the book, so that's kind of interesting that it's in there as well. Mm-hmm. Is that Chris right. Nowinski? Yes. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay. That, that's. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for coming on and sharing your story. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. And I think it's so lovely to hear such great advice um, at the end. So I'm sure so many people, including myself, will take that on going forward. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Joy. We'll speak soon. Bye. Yes.
Bye. See you later. Bye. Well, that is the end of today's episode, everyone. Thank you so, so much for joining us again. We will see you next week, Monday, 8 o'clock, as usual, for the next episode of CT Talk. See you later. Bye.